X-Pac, which is a wrestler that you may know of, I've been a fan of wrestling, tore his anus doing the Bronco <laughs> Buster on Jerry Lynn. He did. He, de- he and, definitely and broke his butt. Minnesota. This is the sort of thing that no one should ever know. <laughs> yeah. But you all X-Pac, know it now. X-Pac tore his butt. And you know, we, we often say, like, how do you know that you've really sacrificed yourself for art? And, and the answer to that question is, have you torn your anus? <laughs> Welcome to the 14th episode of the Opvac Cast. Joining us today, as always, is a man who swears the 18-hour director's cut of Dune is the apex of cinema, Sean Glynnis. Going to say hi, I Sean? Do, mm-hmm, I do n- not say that. I, he said it multiple times. He said that uh, that Dune is the Citizen Kane of movies. Didn't you say that, Sean? Uh, once again, I, I do n- not recall saying that. <laughs> Did you say it was the Citizen Kane of movies? Yeah, that, that was the joke. <laughs> ah, that's that's a real humdinger. <laughs> uh, also joining us is a man who never misses an opportunity to play Kid Rock's I Am the Bull God on the jukebox, Adam Myros. How you doing? Ah, uh, yeah, I'm feeling pretty spicy. <laughs> and of course, the toe cutter himself, Stephen Coleman. Oh, hi. And we also have a special guest this evening, uh, Optimism Vaccine contributor and international playboy, Jake Trapila. Jake, how you doing? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you? Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, yeah, so I know, Sean, you really wanted to talk about Dune, but we're going to have to save that for another podcast. First, we want to uh, talk about Entourage, the movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear Ronda Rousey is going to punch guys and stuff or something. But... but uh... I don't think Adam Grenier, or however you pronounce this, he has not aged, like, a day since OC Season 1. No, I don't think he has either. That's about the best thing you can say about the guy. Or that show, for that matter. Or since she drives me crazy. <laughs> or since she drives me crazy? Since out of the womb. <laughs> All right, well, uh, as much as I'd love to talk about him, uh, I guess Mad Men just ended. And I'm about three seasons behind, so it's still going strong for me. Uh, Myros, best season of television ever, Mad Men Season 7? Uh, it gets my vote. If you count uh, what recently aired in combination with the uh, first half of the season, which I know is kind of a great annoyance. Uh, but, you know, they do these split seasons now because uh, television executives hate us. So, uh because AMC has nothing in the bag. It does seem that way. I guess they've got that uh, preacher show or whatever coming up. Uh, I guess they better call Saul. Ah, yes. They better, they better <laughs> call shots done before they halt and catch fire. Yeah, there, there's an interesting uh, narrative to go along with AMC's programming. Uh, maybe I'll write about it someday. But but in the meantime, we'll stick to Mad Men. Uh I really, really enjoyed the way it closed things out. Uh, I guess I'm also a huge proponent of uh, the Sopranos finale, so maybe that kind of plays in with my enjoyment of this one. But just the the whole journey, especially in this second half, uh, the way the first half of the last season ended, uh, 
they visited Don's uh, whorehouse childhood uh, home. Uh, he showed it to his kids, basically, kind of honesty. And I, I felt like the last half of the season really played out kind of as Don really uh, trying to get home, you know, figuring out what home is to him and uh, stumbling his way there and never being satisfied when he got there. And uh, it was a really fascinating journey for me, and uh, I love the character. I love how they kind of pared it down towards the end to – it's real core and kind of lost a lot of that great ensemble we love, but uh, it was kind of necessary to the narrative, I think. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, I guess it, it's Don is sort of the central character, but what do we think of um, how other characters were, were wrapped up or, or developed in the last season? I think if we want to stick to the finale, I guess the only sticking point for me was I really didn't love the way they handled the, uh, the Peggy stand business, it okay. felt it felt a little cheap to me. It kind of just yeah. A lot of people are calling it fan service. Um, I've heard I've heard good arguments that it's not. Um, I don't know. How did you feel, Jake? You know, I actually liked the um the Stan and Peggy ending. Um, you know, some people kind of write it off as a like a cheesy romantic comedy cliche, but I think yeah, if you... I heard it as Nora Ephronic. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I think if you really look back, the you know the seeds of their relationship were planted you know so much earlier on that it only makes sense that they end up together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I personally don't have issue with the fact that they ended up together. I just thought that the way it unfurled was really kind of clumsy, and it had like the swelling melodramatic music. It almost felt like I was suddenly watching a telenovela or something. <laughs> sure. sure, and um, so I guess. Uh, Cuff, you're watching the series. Um, we should say that, uh, I mean, that that right there is really the only spoiler, but it doesn't really matter. Um, oh, you can, it's okay. I'll like, be fine. Yeah, but, like, uh, there really is no big spoiler. Like, everything takes such, like, uh, mental gymnastics, like, throughout the entire series that, it, you know, it doesn't come down to one, mm-hmm. one point. Um, so I guess uh, the big talking point we can talk, um, what do you guys make of the, or uh, what do you guys make of it ends on this Coke ad, so um, you want to share a Coke with the world, um, which was the you know one of the most famous ads, um, and it was like hippie, this hi- this like hippie commune that was sharing Coke, um, and it, and the the song that accompanied it was like a top forty song, um, and it ends with that, and um, so the implication is that Don, um, who's on this like vision quest of all vision quests. Um, He's stuck on this commune um, because, like, the last vestige of his family has um, has pretty much blocked him out, along with with you know every other piece of his family, um, and he's just stuck on this commune. And um, so he smiles at the end, right? And uh, what do you guys make of the smile and the, the coke ad? Well, I, I feel like I kind of come across as a broken record on this show with the interpretations of endings because I, I just don't care. Like, it, it's fun to look at it both ways as far as just kind of representing this artifice over top of the real authentic moment he uh, had at this basic retreat that he went to. Uh, and independent of Don Draper, it just kind of encapsulates that Artifice of advertising, how it puts its glossy sheen on authenticity of 
life, and that's fine and well. I mean, you can look at it as did Don create it, did Don not create it, did Peggy create it, and I just find myself just wondering who the hell cares about the answers to these questions. Huh. I mean, I, for me, it, it I, I, to, for me, it's not even a question. It seems obvious uh, from my reading that that he made the the ad. Um, yeah. And it it matters be, to me because um, it sort of solidifies that uh, uh, Don isn't really a changed guy. Like his attitude has changed, but who he really is hasn't changed. Like he's all he really has in life is being really good at advertising. And if that's all you're really good at in life, that is de- really depressing. Um, well, I that yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I guess one thing that I I got out of it is a lot of people are kind of arguing whether it was like some great triumph of uh, Don coming to accept himself or whether it's just like him falling back into the same cycle that he's kind of perpetuated throughout the series. And sort I guess night. I I would almost read the former because it feels like his kind of road trip was him. I would say I, I phrase it as he was trying on his uh, Dick Whitman suit. Uh, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was. He, he felt like he'd be more fulfilled as the blue collar individual he kind of grew up as, and he found that that wasn't the case. So, mm-hmm. I, I kind of did read some satisfaction out of uh, his end point. I didn't think it was like the repeat of a cycle, like some people have no. It. No, I don't think it's exactly a repeat, but it's still depressing. Um, what were you gonna add, Jake? Well, I, I was going to just add on to what you said that, you know, Don is, it seems like he's really trying to change, but if you watch throughout the whole series, he's really the only character that kind of stays the same while everyone else changes, you know, to the time and the era and the fashion. And I think at the end, when you look at it deep down, he's still an ad man at heart, and he goes out and just has this moment of um, clarity or what have you, and makes one of the most famous ads of all time, which is probably something only Don Draper could do. Um, there was a, I, was, I just wanted to bring this up. It was a really funny tweet I saw on Twitter after it ended from Tim Heidecker. Uh, he said, prediction for season 801 of Mad Men, Don is back at McCann and back on top after the coke ad is a hit. <laughs> How do you... The guy who invented the Coke ad feels about all this. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe the whole show's been based on his life. <laughs> I don't know. I've always been more of a Dr. Pepper guy. Bullshit. I guess it, I, my, I, I think I, it's interesting uh, to know to note that like his premonition is um, commodifying counterculture. I think that's really kind of a funny thing about the ending as well. Yeah, yeah, I definitely. That that's kind of a nice transition from the base 60s setting into the 80s mega consumerist boom. Uh but yeah, I I guess I'd transition from discussing the themes and what you took out of the last season into what you took out of the series in general. What what it meant to me was it was really my gateway into television. I don't think I've ever Really started a series as it was airing prior to Mad Men. I mean, it kind of got me back into like into bulking a bunch of old episodes of prestige television, and it was definitely my gateway. And uh, it's the first series that I started watching week to week, and thereby the first series I kind of had to bury. So it's it's definitely brings out that complex relationship you have with television, which. Sean wrote so eloquently about in the Shepherd Express last week. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah, I guess I would ask you guys who have gone through it, what, what are you going to miss the most about it? For me, I think, I think I'm think i going to miss seeing uh, 
slattery on TV every every week. I <laughs> I love yeah. me some Roger Sterling, even from. I love Slider even way back when Cuff and I used to guilty pleasure watch Desperate Housewives and Slider was on there. <laughs> we used to dub him Sexy Grandpa. <laughs> Definitely. Um, I uh, I kind of hesitate to say that I'm going to miss stuff um, that's ending just because um, I, I think I wrote it in the piece that I, I take solace in like being able to watch like hours and hours of of it over and over again. That's like amazing. Um, but uh, at the same time, this se- this seventh season, like it showed it had such legs still, and um, like I just I went through I binge watched uh, the first half of the the season that aired last year, and I was just like astounded. I thought it was absolutely amazing, and um, there's a point, um, probably like I don't know season five or six or maybe each season where you're like, oh okay, they're hitting like a wall, or or you could see how it could hit a wall soon. And um, the cre- the creator and the writers just show that they they have a lot of of stuff to explore with these characters and um, yeah I, I don't I don't know it's it's sad because I know it could still be amazing for like seasons to come but at the same time I'm really looking forward to going back through it again. Uh, anything specific you'll miss, Jake? Um, I'm not sure if there's anything. I'll I'll you know I'll. Uh, Pardon me. I'll miss the show definitely. I don't know if um I can really think of anything specific I would miss. Uh, you know, Slattery is a good choice. Um, but yeah, like Sean said, I can always go back and rewatch it. I'm definitely gonna get some sort of box set that they'll release and just go into hours of uh, behind the scenes footage and commentaries and stuff. And um, like Sean said, it, this last season it really stood you know, still could go on for a while it seemed and you know i i don't think uh you know it necessarily needed to end but at the same time you know i'm not too upset that it's over but i will i'll definitely miss the show it was a good show um and i'm actually you said myra said you watched it since the beginning uh i actually started with uh the beginning of season two i read a write-up on the first season and immediately watched it on demand and then started as it aired live starting with season two okay I should admit, I only started watching it um, six months ago, and then I spent the last few weeks frantically playing catch-up for the <laughs> final episode. Just to watch yeah. it live. That's like, yeah, it's it's weird like um, to think, um, not, not to sell your experience short at all, um, but it's weird to think about how long I've been watching it, because um, it was pretty much a gateway for television for me. Um, a friend of mine showed it to me, uh, while we were dating in college, and I just remember, like, it was, like, on during finals, and, you know, like, at that point, I was just like, oh, yeah, it's a TV show. Like, my roommate watched, like, The West Wing all the time, which I think is, like, just super, super annoying. Or, or like, um, that, that Spider-Man, or what was that Superman, like, origin story show? Smallville. Smallville. Like, that, that's all I really, cons- like, thought about, um, of, like, new TV. And, um... Um, I'm sure there are plenty of people that love West Wing that that would um, love to argue with me now. But um, you more yeah. of a Lois and Clark guy, Sean? <laughs> I, I yeah, Lois you and Clark and early edition. The Sunday the Sunday double bill of uh, uh, Lois and Clark and early edition was was oh, my jam. Yeah. But but anyway, like um, I just remember like as the first season was wrapping up, as we were binging it during finals, I just like remember like um, seeing Don. Um, at the like bottom of his staircase when he comes home to like his empty house, 
after he did that great presentation about the um the slide projector and I was just like, Oh wow, this is this is like something else and it really like kinda gave me whiplash and um I just every season after that I, I like double watched before the next season came out. Wow. Yeah. I have a really similar experience. I mean, that that last episode of the first season where he gives that iconic carousel speech, really, it taught me what TV could be. And uh, I'm glad. And since then, I, I've pretty much hit just about everything I can. I devour the stuff. Uh, if it's acclaimed, I've seen it. I will continue to do so. It's a really rewarding medium that I never gave the time of day until Mad Men taught me how. So... Uh, I'm eternally grateful to the show, and uh, it's it's definitely my favorite dramatic series uh, ever, and I will definitely miss it. But uh, one last point before we do move on. Uh, obviously, I'll let you guys get some more in if you want. But uh, that you were talking about how you kind of felt like every season there was this kind of stumbling point. You say, oh, they might be running out of steam, and that's kind of why I'm glad it ended because it never felt that way in season seven. Like they. Mm-hmm. You could, it was so tight the whole way through, and there was like this certain point where they almost played with your expectation of that, where Don and, and company are like, hey, we're going to branch out and start our own uh, new firm in, in California, and it was like, okay, this it seemed like a total retread of previous plot points that we'd seen, yeah. and they just pulled the rug out from under you on that, and uh, it's just a big kind of fuck you to that expectation, and then it yeah. it's it's great, great writing. I just love, my last note is I love the subtle note that we all know Pete is going to die on an airplane like his ancestors. <laughs> uh, well, I have one thing that I want to add as someone who hasn't watched very much Mad Men. Uh, so I guess there's a character who sexually harasses someone to the yeah. point of, like, leaving. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> so whoever played this character, BuzzFeed decided to do an interview with him. About so, the subject. Yeah, about about his character on Mad Men, about you know being a sexual harassing creeper and what that was like, and how you know is it difficult as an actor to kind of play that part? And the guy, the actor, actually came in and then promptly sexually harassed a bunch of women at the BuzzFeed office. So he wasn't really acting at all. Yeah, and that's so bizarre because when you're watching that scene, it's like so it it seems like overwrought, um, and then that like. Reading that story, it's like, oh, okay, wow. <laughs> like, I mean, it seems overwrought for nowadays, but this was the, you know, early '70s, late '60s, so it, it, I'm sure it makes sense. But um, it just kind of like is is really um, uh, unsettling. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly unsettling, especially because like it's not even subtle. Like when he actually sexually harassed the BuzzFeed people, it, it wasn't subtle. It wasn't something like, oh, you could interpret this as something completely different. It was just like horribly crass. He like rubbed a woman a woman's shoulders and was just like, yeah, I'll show you 12 inches of pleasure, baby. Hey, hey, hey that's, you know, in my day, we called that method acting. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. He's probably just still struggling to get out of character. Can't break himself from it. <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, well, on our last episode of the Outback Cast, other than talking about Pootie Tang, we also spent a decent amount of time talking about, you know, what's going on in the Marvel Universe, uh, specifically with Daredevil and, of course, the new Avengers movie. And I think, Myros, you and I both had the same reaction to the Avengers where it was just, it, it kind of hit like a, a wet blanket. It was not very exciting, 
it felt kind of played out. It was a mess in terms of the story, and it just kind of sucked. And for a while, it was I was sort of struggling with the idea that okay, maybe you know since everyone's still so high on on Marvel stuff, maybe I'm just getting to the point where. I just don't care about summer blockbusters anymore. Like, I'm just getting old and jaded, and I just don't give a shit about movies like this. And then I went and saw Mad Max Fury Road, and I know exactly what a modern summer blockbuster should be. Um, I think it's the best action film I've seen in probably the last decade. I can't think of anything better. Um, I could also say that I don't think I'd change anything in it. It's just it has this breakneck pace, and it's perfect. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't take a single scene out of it. Uh, so yeah, you guys all saw Mad Max. How did you guys how'd you feel about it? Let's go to Coleman first. Well, first of all, we're talking about Mad Men, and now we're talking about Mad Max. What is this? The Mad Podcast? <laughs> yeah, just wait till we talk about Diary of a Mad Black Woman. Whoa, what are we doing here? And also, also, Steve Man. Coleman, Nicole Sullivan, most underrated Mad TV cast member. Oh, <laughs> absolutely, right, right behind Keen Peel. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, what what did, what did you think of Mad Max? What did I think of Mad Max? Well, yes, I will tell you, Steve Cuff, and and I am um, never been a big fan of um, of action films necessarily. Like I'm not I'm not like a follower of current Hollywood blockbusters. Like I just it's just not my not my not my jam. Not your tempo. Not my tempo. Not my tempo. I throw <laughs> chairs across the room. Tells me. Hey, you should go see Age of Ultron, and uh, I call them, uh, you know, homophobic slurs. Anyway, uh, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good deep whiplash reference. <laughs> it took me a while to get there, but uh, yeah, I'm the J.K. Simmons of uh, Optimism Vaccine, everybody. Um, so anyway, I'm sorry I keep uh, going off the rails here. That's okay. Uh, hey, hey, get a little more intimate with that microphone so we can hear you clear. Is that a little bit better? Oh, yes, it is. That's, oh, that's, that's like a very white noise right there. <laughs> this is uh, right up against my lips. <laughs> All right. Give Sorry. it to me soft and smooth, Steve. So Mad Max uh, was a very sexy film. Uh, sexy not meaning as in like it sexually aroused me, but just a very sexy film. It's just like Steve was saying. It's uh, perfect. I There's not anything I would have wanted to change in it either. I thought that it was a very important film for the times that we're in, um, not necessarily politically or culturally, as like I don't think that it was, the story made a big statement, but I thought the way the movie was uh, put together makes obviously a very big statement. Um, and the fact that we have, um, I, I don't know, like I, <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Uh, it kind of blew me away. Uh, yeah, it's kind of hard. I, I really want to go back and see it again just because I don't think I, I – I'm pretty sure I didn't blink for about two hours. Right. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm still kind of processing everything, and I kind of want to go back in knowing what I'm going to see and then just kind of sit back and, and yeah. soak it all in. Yeah, as someone who saw some of it twice, um, it, <laughs> I, I, I think it benefits for, from that. And I want to go see it for a second time, but part of that be for the third time. Yeah, because you are actually the only person in the history of the world who fell asleep during Mad Max Fury Road. Which you you, you need to explain yourself. Uh, chemically um, uh, invoked. 
Were you lost in the K-hole? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we just went to a late showing, and I had just the right amount of alcohol. Ketamine. And, and, um, so much and, melatonin. <laughs> and we got a pizza, because we hadn't had dinner yet. Uh, anyway... Uh yeah, I fell asleep. But but that's that's more about me than the movie. Um I fall asleep during all kinds of great movies. But um uh yeah, I, I think um I want I want I definitely want to go see it again and um it's one of the I hate this I've probably even said this on this bad podcast before, but I hate like you gotta see it on the big screen. But this is just such like a rush of adrenaline that's like not the rush of adrenaline that we're um used to. Mm-hmm. Um that's so unique for for the big screen and um yeah, there's there's a lot to there's a lot to to say about it. Um, yeah, I totally agree. I, mean, I watched it the whole time thinking like, ah, how can I watch that on my uh, 36 inch screen? And um, I really don't think I could. No, it, it definitely wouldn't have the same impact. And I'm glad you brought that up, Sean, because uh, another movie that I liked a lot uh, that came out last year, uh, Gravity. I think that's the same thing. Like, I don't want to watch Gravity on. My, my television because I it, I would just it would lose I would lose the experience. That's something you just have to see in in the theater. And I and I think uh, that's that's what separates both Fury Road and Gravity from a lot of other action movies is just um, Did anybody see it in three D? No. no I, I didn't and it it seems like there's only one scene where it's like here's your you know mandatory three D gimmick scene and that's where the guy throws the guitar and it just like comes straight at the camera. <laughs> Uh, I saw it in 3D. Ooh. I, I didn't intend to see it in 3D, but uh, the show times <laughs> weren't like they weren't separated on the uh, IMDb there, so I just uh, ended up stumbling into a 3D showing. You should have just taken your glasses off. Yeah, that that would have done it. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna let Jake go next because I feel like I'm gonna get some stones thrown at me. So uh, let's Hot have take. another positive opinion. Hot <laughs> oh. take tea. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, um, I loved it. I thought, you know, it's probably the best experience I had watching an action film. I would probably say not since the first Raid movie. I don't know if you guys saw the Raid. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, but yeah. it's just, uh, just, you know, an amazing two-hour car chase. It compared quite a bit. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's a very simple central conceit, but it's just the fact that they sustain such, you know, magnificent momentum and there's real stunt work going on. It all looks... Looks really well done. Is just very. Uh, I thought it was you know that's honestly an amazing experience, and I certainly can't wait to see it again. Mm-hmm. All right, time for the Adam Myros hot take. Uh, <laughs> Buckle up. So, uh, I, rest assured, my take's not that hot. I'm not like, hey, that movie was trash. No, uh, it just again like we're you, talking about walking into the theater okay. being. Are you an MRA? <laughs> yeah, that that's it. Uh, <laughs> No, like Steve was talking about going into the theater feeling kind of like he'd outgrown blockbusters, and this kind of gave him that rejuvenated feel. And it didn't for me. Like it, I felt, I, I was kind of feeling that same Scrooge vibe going in, and it just, it, it didn't change my mind. It might have been the 3D, but the whole thing just felt like loud and overbearing. And I, I did, I appreciate a lot about it. And again, I agree totally with what uh, Coleman said about. It's importance, and I love the fact that it's an original work, and they did all this practical work. And you, you can see the labor on screen, and it's impossible not to appreciate. But did I love it? No. Did I? Would I put it like like people? I think you guys said the best action movie I've seen in X number of years. Like I could name 
too easily off the top of my head from last year. The Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Wait, wait. Are you going to say Dread? No, just from last year. Let's stick to last year. I'm going to say The Raid 2 and John Wick both worked a lot better for me as far as uh, action films go. Uh, It just... It was just too much for me. Uh, and again, I don't think the 3D helped at all. It was just like no, overbearing. Kind of <laughs> and I like a good 3D film when it's filmed in 3D, which this was not. It was a post-convert, and it was just kind of ugly. And I, I, there's like, I don't know, a lot of things are starting to annoy me about the film, even though, again, I greatly appreciate it. I would not give it a negative review by any stretch of the imagination, but I just... I'm tired of hearing uh, this feminist uh, aspect of it, which doesn't really exist, in my opinion. Uh, it doesn't have much of a narrative oh. thrust at all. It's just a it's a tight narrative, which I appreciate, uh, but it's not. I don't think there's a great deal of subtext to be pulled from it. I think most of it's invented by the audience uh, reacting to do an internet troll who uh, <laughs> was on and on about women existing in Mad Max being some crime against humanity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think you can get a feminist reading out of it because it's yeah, pretty yeah. clear that the world was destroyed by men. The horrible people in this world are men. And the only surviving, like, community that isn't a bunch of, like, shitheads trying to murder everyone is a matriarchal society that, you know, basically tried to rebuild the world and grow crops and shit until the, uh, you know, radiation and whatnot kind of ruined that for them. So I, you know, and I think there is a, there is a feminist reading in that sense. And also, even though this is Mad Max the movie, Mad Max isn't exactly the central character. Um, yeah, this is I curious. definitely get all that. Sure, sure, I get all that, and I don't disagree with it. I just don't think George Miller set out to make a feminist tome, and I think it's just kind of being well, drawn that way suddenly. The author is dead. I don't know if anyone told you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, no, I think it's. Um, Figuratively and quite literally about like defanging the the patriarchy. Um, uh, I say literally because they pull his jaw out. But um, <laughs> that was awesome. And, and uh, when she when um, one of the women takes off her like chastity belt and it's all just like teeth. Um, uh, but. Not only that stuff, but uh, kind of like what Cuff was going on about. Like there, there's also like a uh, comment on like the the military, military like industrial complex that that they're um, that they're building there of of just all these men who don't really know know what they're doing, but um, they're contributing to the cause and whatnot. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I don't I don't know. Um, I I don't really think it matters um, how much it's trying to to um, be a feminist um, propaganda or whatever, but it, it exists as that, and I, I think I think I found a um, plenty plenty strong enough reading to to sustain. Well, uh, this is kind of ironic considering we probably spent our our whole uh, shotgun wedding podcast kind of reading beyond what the author's intent was, and <laughs> and, and now I'm objecting to that in some sense, but I, I'm not really objecting to it. I just I feel like. Miller's track record kind of shows him as a storyteller and not a an issues filmmaker, and I think it's just this narrative that's, for whatever reason, has decided to be tacked onto the film. And I I, I don't dislike it, I guess inherently. It's just kind of an annoyance that this triumphant return to 
you know, old Hollywood action films is for some reason interpreted in this political way for, and it's just not what it is to me. But uh, See, I, I don't know. I, I disagree with you. I think there's, there's precedent for, uh, George Miller being a lot more political than you give him credit for. Uh, if you look at Mad Max as a movie and, and then, uh, The Road Warrior, Road Warrior especially, they were sort of, they sort of came out of this era, late 1970s oil crisis, and so Miller is kind of playing with this idea of people continuing to fetishize machines and masculinity and power, but in a world where there's not, you know, oil and fuel to kind of run these things and kind of keep these systems together. Another thing Miller has done, and this is in, uh, not so much in the original Mad Max, but definitely in The Road Warrior and in the... Babe, Pig in the City. <laughs> and in Babe, Pig in the City. No, I was going to go with Beyond Thunderdome there. Uh, he has a lot of... Uh, female characters who are kind of on equal footing with men, and he doesn't he doesn't draw attention to it or anything. They're just sort of there. So in this world, Miller's created uh, society sort of, you know, fallen apart. So now these characters are on more equal footing, and and they don't really again they don't draw attention to it. It's just sort of there. It's very natural, and that's another thing that I really like about Fury Road is just the world that it exists in, it feels so lived in, and there's so much attention to detail, um, especially in the vehicles, like that, that scene where she's pulling, or where Mad Max is pulling all the, you know, the different weapons and stuff out of Furiosa's truck, and she's got, like, the kill switches, and there's just so much detail that goes into every single scene, and it really feels like something that he's been thinking about for 30 years. You can tell he's thought of every single minute detail. Uh, I'd agree entirely on that point. Like, I love the world building in this movie. I think it's just marvelous. I love all the, like, the fetishized automobile stuff, and I love their, like, paint-huffing Valhalla religion. It's, mm-hmm. it's altogether wonderful, but I, I guess what, the things I just don't like about it are kind of a product of that old Hollywood nature of it, or, like, I, everyone, I mean, loves this doof warrior thing, uh, with the, uh, the guitars and tribal drums just drive yeah. along. It's an amazing, uh, it just, it's an amazing effort to throw in this kind of external, like internal way to, to add scoring to the film. But then behind that, there's this like sweeping orchestral score that really becomes overbearing at times and bothers me, uh, quite a bit. Uh, I wish they'd just let that tribal drum, uh, wild guitar stuff really be the score of the film. I was kind of expecting this really clever thing, like they blew up that car towards the end, and mm-hmm. I was I was expecting the movie to go silent at that point. I was just like waiting for that to happen, and it just it didn't. And I, again, I can't really add my own expectation out of that in that way. It's not fair, but it's just how I felt. Like I I thought the uh, orchestral score was out of place, and. I guess another thing being that I think there was a lot of interesting performances going on in the film, and you wouldn't know it because they, they all kind of felt drowned out by all the incessant noise and goings-on. <laughs> I, I mean, I loved um, <clears throat> Tom Hardy's performance. Um, I think he has, like, this great insular, like, introvertedness to him that, that just suits that really well. But um, I had also heard... Um, uh, well, I mean, I would certainly not be the only one to think about um, Mad Max Fury Road's relation to silent cinema. Like, it, it just feels like a lot of silent movies or animated movies where there just isn't mm-hmm. isn't like a uh, like a beat for beat like um, dialogue or anything like that. And even like the the speed seems a bit ramped up. But um, 
somebody was stabbing him. Bad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sometimes it can be a bit abrasive. That's a George Miller staple. You see that in all the Mad Max films, that like sped up film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but, but somebody was talking about Charlize Theron's, uh, the way, the way that she's shot, like Falconetti in, um, Passion of Joan of Arc or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. and I've heard other, like, uh, things, uh, com- comparisons to, like, uh, Metropolis and things like that, um, that really just make me, more than anything else, um, not only appreciate the acting, but just want to go see it again. Yeah. And keep in mind, too, George Miller is 70 years old. Like yeah. this is this is one of the most refreshing action movies in years. It's so completely different and and feels so modern and it's made by a grandpa. And everyone involved, it's not like he's got like, you know, a bunch of young kids doing the editing and the cinematography and stuff. Everyone involved is old as shit. Mm-hmm. So these are all this is just a bunch of senior citizens completely showing everyone in Hollywood up. Yeah, as a fan of this sort of genre film, I, I mean, I love the shit out of the original Mad Max. I think it's just about perfect. And, uh, but you, you look at that era of film with like these low budget guys, like, and I have this big three that I've certainly discussed a lot with Kyle in the past with is, is George Romero, uh, John Carpenter and Dario Argento, who uh, all of them like at the exact same time just completely forgot how to make movies. So it's kind of refreshing to see someone who's aged gracefully. Yeah. So you really liked Happy Feet? <laughs> I, I have never seen it, but... Uh, About Lorenzo's oil. <laughs> I can tell you, it's a lot like better than... Lorenzo soiled. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it's a lot better than, like, Dario Argento's Giallo, which is one of the worst films you'll ever see in your life. So. Oh, what was that, that Mother of Tears movie? Good Lord, that was <laughs> a complete atrocity. Or John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> Um, Jake and Steve, do you have other things um, that you wanted to, uh, so that we're not monopolizing the mic? I don't know. I was, I guess, I was just going to agree. Like one of my favorite parts, or one of my favorite aspects of the film, was actually the acting. Uh, I think it's uh, Charlie Theron's like best role in years, mm-hmm. um, at least since young adult. <laughs> if you want to <laughs> count that, I don't really count it, but you guys can. <laughs> uh, Jake. Anything else you want to add about Fury Road? Um, I'm just trying to gather my thoughts here. Uh, I well, I definitely want to see it again. I wonder, has everyone else here seen like the other films? I know Myra, you said you did. Yeah, I've, I uh, I watched all three of them in a row the other day. I I, I watched the first one uh, the, a day or two ago. I played the NES version of Mad Max when I was like six. Nice. <laughs> Shitty a, Spy Hunter ripoff. A par- paratext, as we would call it. <laughs> so I feel like I know it already. Yeah. I definitely want to see it again, but I think that this may... I, I'm hesitant to say this, but I think it may be the best one in the series, um, which is very high praise nowadays if, to have a sequel, or not really a sequel, but a reboot like this come out 30 years after the worst one that they ever made. <laughs> and better than all the other ones is it's pretty astounding. And um, yeah, like you mentioned about George Miller being 70 years old and he has a team of grandpas working with him. Um, it, you know, they're just showing that they have the experience. They know how to get things done before the age of, you know, CGI and, and things like that. And so they're all about the practical effects and it just it works really well on the screen. I also want to add that um, it's a very, very bright, movie in terms of color like you mm-hmm. see a lot of 
post-apocalyptic films nowadays, and they're just like so desaturated and just like grayed out and sun bleached. But this is like ah, just the, the Book of Eli. Yeah, the Book of Eli. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is the antithesis of that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's a, that's a really good point. Um, and it's and it's so hard to do too because the entire movie takes place in this barren desert, so I, I don't know how it feels so vibrant and colorful and alive when everything is just dead and sand. So and it's, I don't know, it's a real accomplishment. Uh, similar to that, it's it's um it's an accomplishment that the entire thing um feels like a car chase or whatever, a rig chase, but somehow it's not boring at all for me. Um like he he just found a way to um incorporate different um, like the polecats are, are incredible, like that scene and, and the just different weapons that really spice up this very, very simple thing that in an elevator pitch would sound like the most boring like student film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, yeah, I, ahead, I guess, uh, again, one of my... I, I'm going to bring it back down. I'm, I, keep, I keep bringing it back down. No, uh, I, I, and again, I did like this film. I just don't think it's a... God's gift to you, contrarian son of a bitch. <laughs> I would be part of the 98% positive reviews on the Rotten Tomatoes, but I would not be part of the uh, aggregate review score of nine out of ten or whatnot. But, yeah. uh, People have called you the Armand White of optimism vaccine. I just like I struggled for something to surprise me in the film. It was kind of exactly what I expected from the trailers. I'd compare it to something that's. More, much more people hated, which was Neil Marshall's Doomsday, which we have mentioned on this podcast in the past, uh, which kind of started off as this total Escape from New York riff, and then midway through just like dropped you into uh, Malcolm McDowell's Castle World, and I was just like, what the hell's happening here? I was just expecting that moment of Mad Max to come upon me, like just a moment where I was like thrown for a loop. It just felt like exactly... 100% what I saw in the trailer is exactly what happened. And, and again, that's fine. It's just, it, there's just things, I have some nagging issues with the movie. Like, I just didn't care much of what happened to the characters. I was never not invested in anyone in the film. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> I, I, um, I wanted to add, though, um, uh, I, one of the reasons I want to see it again is, um, like, it's just such a piece of visual storytelling and some of the things that I haven't really put together until like I listened to other like podcasts about it uh, and one of the like really notable scenes um, that I didn't put together is how Mad Max literally washes the patriarch's blood off his face with breast milk <laughs> he does do that yeah that, yeah that, that's just incredible did anyone else catch how uh, Tom Hardy was essentially battling uh, two versions of Bane <laughs> There was uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. steroidal muscle-bound Bane and uh, mask-wearing uh, inaudible Bane teaming up against Tom Hardy. <laughs> With a hint of Wallace thrown in there, too. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, um, and I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Nicholas Holt. I haven't really heard him in any of the discourse. Uh, the Nux character, I like him a lot. Um, mm. And <clears throat> I liked how we were able to have, even before he kind of turned good, um, we had empathy for... Um, this savage. I, I, I thought that was tasteful. Yeah, no, that part was really well done, and again, I think it's a testament to George Miller's world building, uh, building and also 
just kind of the way that he creates these strong central villains. Um, if, if you look at The Road Warrior and you look at Fury Road and I, I guess to a lesser extent Beyond Thunderdome, you have these, these cults of personality, like antagonists, but it's, it's easy to feel bad for the people that are underneath them because they're just kind of trying to survive and they're just following this central figure. Uh, and Imid, what's his name? Imogen Heap, Imogen Joe. Jim Heap. I don't remember any audio. Regina Stone. Immortan Joe. Immortan Joe, yeah. So you have this character, Joe, and then all these war boys are just these, like, sick and dying, irradiated people who are just trying to, you know, huff paint and die so they can go to a better place. And uh, it's, it's just so cool that, I don't know, that, that, the character, uh, what's his, the, the, the character that turns into a good guy, that he's able no. to flip like that, but it doesn't feel cheap and it doesn't feel artificial. Like, it feels completely natural in the world, yeah. which is a very difficult thing to pull off. So, can we transition a little into the older films? Like, uh, yeah, I don't know yeah. how we want to go about that, but, uh, I, I guess I would be the, uh, A number one champion of the original Mad Max. I think it's kind of forgotten in the narrative about, the Mad Max films, because it, it almost doesn't fit with the other three. It's uh, really stripped down, like Grindhouse revenge movie. Uh, and, again, one of my foibles with the new movie, and all of the movies, actually, is, is the way he uses that, what Steve Cuff has at one point dubbed uh, Munster Cam. <laughs> there's there's a there's a lot of monster cam in the original too. <laughs> there is, but the way the monster cam is used in the original is is really utilitarian. It's it's exclusively used for the car chase scenes. Mm-hmm. Whereas, should should like, we explain what what we're talking about with monster cam? It's just when you speed up footage of something yeah, so it looks like, like a, a car is driving faster than it is. Right, like a variable frame rate type yeah. thing. Uh, which Herm- is, Herman <laughs> Munster used it in the Monster Mobile many a time. Yeah, it's used. Uh, Less effectively, for me, it's most grating in the Road Warrior when that when the wild child like shows up and just like speeds around town at uh, double speed and whips <laughs> a boomerang. Uh, but yeah, I I love the first one. I don't love any of the others. I think they're all okay. Uh, well, except Thunderdome. That's not. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. What? I was gonna say you think Thunderdome's okay, and we will get to Thunderdome. Thunderdome's not okay. But the first film. Uh, Wonderful, stripped down. It's it's not even a post-apocalyptic film, really. It, it's almost like just this reaction to the 70s gas crisis, and it, it's kind of a heightened reality almost. Like, you know, it feels a little lawless, but it, it just kind of feels like what us as ignorant Americans kind of envisioned the uh, Australian outback to be like in general. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. I, I yeah. just assume it's just like Mad Max. Right. I figure if I visited Australia, I'd probably run into the fucking toe cutter. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of my favorite details about the new film is that uh, Immortan Joe is played by the same actor who played the toe cutter. That is a very nice touch. Bringing yeah. it all back around. I think his performance is very underrated as well. Uh, and again, one of those things I just kind of felt was buried between beneath a lot of sound. But I thought he did something really interesting with that character. Mm-hmm. No, no, yeah, that was amazing, amazing villain. Both Toe Cutter and Joe. Yeah, that's why uh, Mad Max is my favorite because it provides Max with actual motivation. He's not just this like wanderer who stumbles into a scenario. His actions are motivated. He is 
an actual hero in the film, and it's just a, a stripped-down grindhouse car revenge film, and it's yeah. ex- executed to perfection. It's a you really know, tight uh, film. Um, actions speak louder than words, and I feel like Miller really gets that. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, he's very good at showing and not oh, telling. I wasn't serious. I wasn't. <laughs> no, but seriously, seriously, he is good at showing and not telling. Uh, and I mean, and going back to Fury Road too. How many lines of dialogue are in that script? Oh, right. like especially, six. Well, especially from Tom Hardy, he just kind of goes. Uh, they, they, I believe they didn't really write a whole lot of a script, but they started storyboarding, which um, apparently is very like animated way of building a film. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Uh, Jake, I know you've seen all of the Mad Max movies. Uh, do, do you have a favorite? Uh, do you have any thoughts on the original or Road Warrior? Or are you secretly a Beyond Thunderdome lover? <laughs> favorite? Uh, not Thunderdome, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> I, I It's been a while, actually, since I've seen the Road Warrior and Thunderdome. I really do like the first one, um, is like uh, Adam said. Uh, it's not a, really a post-apocalyptic world, but the world is like on the brink of collapse. Um, like there's still law enforcement, but they're hard not able to keep everything to get together. Um, and it's really different from uh, the Road Warrior, which I also really like. Um, a comparison I find myself returning to is like the Evil Dead and the Evil Dead Two. Um, mm-hmm. The Evil Dead is just a very stripped down, gritty cabin in the woods film, and Evil Dead Two is the more outlandish one that everyone remembers. Um, but they often forget that the you know original is really just as good, if not better. Sure, um, sure. And then Beyond Thunderdome, I remember watching it, and I've only seen it once, and it was so long ago. But I was watching it, and I had just kind of like a uh, "What are they thinking?" vibe going on. <laughs> then watching yeah. it, uh, it didn't really. I mean, it's kind of iffy uh, through the most part. Um, and the Thunderdome fight scenes, I guess, were okay. But then once the kids show up and it turns into, like, Lord of the Flies, it's, I, is <laughs> I was checked out. It's, was, it's basically a prequel to Hook when you think about it. Yeah, that, oh, that's the total vibe. I got a vibe was Hook to the max. Like, Lord of the Flies is doing it a lot of favors. Cause yeah. There's, like, no edge to anything that occurs. That it's basically happens. Hook. But everyone has like a like a fucking PBS production of Oliver Twist accent. Uh. So they're like, "Oh, Captain Walker!" Oh, that's that's like ninety percent of the dialogue. Yeah, I'm actually really sold here. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually it's we we could talk about Thunderdome a little bit here. Um, I, I want to say I want to say one more thing about uh the original Mad Max and and the Road Warrior. Uh, we talked about the the special effects, the practical effects in Fury Road. And they are absolutely amazing in the original Mad Max and the Road Warrior. Um, the stunts, the things that they filmed, I guarantee several people got severely injured on both of those movies. There's this one part in particular in uh, the original Mad Max where a guy, he, uh, he crashes a motorcycle and he lays down the motorcycle. And you can tell that what he's supposed to do is the motorcycle is supposed to slide into this car and the tires of the motorcycle are supposed to hit the car. But at the last second, the motorcycle pivots and then you just watch this guy's head just smash against the car. It's absolutely brutal. And there's, and, and there's no hiding it either. It's not like, you know, oh, it was supposed to be that way. It clearly was not supposed to be that way. No, it, it's just 
I love these gritty like every time people throw up these acclaimed sequels like like Jake was talking about Evil Dead versus Evil Dead Two and so a lot of narratives like where you'll see oh Terminator Two or Aliens and stuff like that I a hundred percent always Dawn of the Dead versus Night of the Living Dead I'm always on the side of the the scrappy original film I don't know why it's just I love these like low budget type productions that with this. Mm-hmm. This brilliant original one idea. Things, one of the things, as someone who hadn't seen it in, um, I, I had only seen it recently, and it was after seeing Fury Road. Um, I was surprised at how it also shared that that uh, silent film quality. Like there is barely any dialogue, and a lot of it is done with just like facial um, acting. But uh, one of the things I really liked about both films that I saw also is. Um, George Miller, like, in between all of this, like, adrenaline and action, uh, like, finds these really quiet, like, poignant moments that don't feel like, they don't feel like Nicholas Sparksy or anything like that. <laughs> um, like, they, they just feel like really nice, like, breaks from the action that are, that are constructive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely, it. definitely. Uh, so Thunderdome. Let's talk a little Thunderdome before Let's we... talk Thunderdome. Oh, one, one real quick plug. Actually, no. You know what? I'm I'm gonna save the plug. I'm gonna save the plug. Let's, you gonna put we, over we, that plug? I'm, I'm gonna put over the plug. The plug's getting put over. Uh oh my God! Can we talk about Thunderdome? So, a couple things I want to bring to the table real quick. One, this isn't a 100% George Miller production. It's co-directed by some asshole, and it honestly feels like two separate movies. So, literally, the point where Mad Max goes beyond the Thunderdome <laughs> is where it turns into a completely different movie. The second thing uh, that I wanted to mention was this movie, and, and I was paying attention because I was like, okay, this is kind of weird. There are no cars in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome until the 90-minute mark of the movie. That's the first time we see a car. And it's not even a car chase. It's a group of cars chasing a train with Mad Max on it. So there's there's no actual car chase in all of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which seems a little sad. Honestly. Yeah, which, which you get at that, at that point in time is like making Fast and Furious 8 with, with no cars until the 90-minute mark, right? Yeah, it's basically. It's a car, car-centric series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. I, I mean... And the weird thing was, is I remember watching Beyond Thunderdome as a kid because it would always, like, on Saturday afternoons, they would always play it back-to-back with uh, Cyborg starring Jean-Claude Van Damme. (laughs) So that was my standard issue back-to-back double feature on Saturdays. And I loved it as a kid, and now I know why, because the second half of the movie, or actually I should say the second, like, two-thirds of the movie, it's basically a kid's movie. Oh, it's a kid's movie. I, I kept expecting Robin Williams to pop in and teach him the merry ways of Neverland. <laughs> Isn't it also a PG-13, too? Yes. I don't it know. Is. is it? It is. It okay. Is. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. Uh, it, it's a shame, too, because honestly, the first third of the movie, I, I really enjoyed it. I like Mad Max's character, like when he um when he goes to Barter Town and he's taking all of his weapons out. It was just kind of this like corny, kind of goofy edge to his character. It was actually kind of reminiscent of like Army of Darkness or something like that, where I you know I thought they were just going to take it in a really silly direction. Uh, I like Master Blaster as a character. I thought you know it was kind of fun, 
And uh, then, yeah, as, as soon as he leaves the Thunderdome and goes to Never Never Land, it's, uh, it's fucking yeah. horrible. I cannot even put into words how unwatchable it was. It's it it drags horribly. Like it, you're like, okay, he's met some kids, and then they just tell this entire nonsensical. Again, they're they're all talking like Oliver Twist, and uh, they just tell this story about a pilot crashing. I guess I what the hell do they expect? There was a pilot that crashed, and now they think he's gonna like come back like Jesus and sweep them away or something. Yeah, and 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 they think that he's gonna like drive the plane that's crashed in the fucking desert. It's like, hey, and and the other thing about this too is they think he's gonna drive the plane while simultaneously they're wearing like artifacts from the plane. Like one of them has like the control board as like a chess piece. So it's like, <laughs> hey, fuck stick. Even if he did show up, you just ripped out the control panel and stapled it to your chest. So what is he supposed to do? Classic <laughs> mistake. <laughs> like, like, where does this narrative originate? Like, where did they get this, like, bizarre religion? It, it would help if they had, like, the black box or something. They're playing some flight recordings or something. Like, I just got no sense of why any of this was happening or what their end game was. Again, they're, they're pretty much living in the best place in the entire world. Yes, which, which <laughs> Mad Max tells them. Like, they think that Mad Max is this Captain Walker guy. Captain Walker, as they would say. Uh, and, and he tells them, he's like, listen... This is beautiful. Don't fucking leave because the rest of the world is shit. I'm telling you, it's shit. And they're like, oh no, we're gonna go anyways. And then you have to do, and then it just becomes this like, you know, fetch quest where Mad Max has to walk into the desert and save these idiot children from themselves. Yeah, and then they end up in uh, a bombed out Sydney instead of uh, going back to their beautiful oasis. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense either. So yeah, they they're like, oh well. We heard of a place with big, giant buildings. And Mad Max is like, no, nah, that place is all fucked up. You don't want to go there. So clearly, like, Sydney was hit by a nuke. And we learn in the end that they wanted to go to, like, the, the nuke fallout zone and, and live out their days instead of the beautiful oasis with clean, flowing water. Yeah, and it's got that same fairy tale narration at the end as uh, the Road Warrior, where it's just like, and then he helped us do this, and we're eternally grateful. Yeah. And now uh, he's I, gone. You know, I hope all those stupid kids grow mutant penises out of their foreheads for leaving the Oasis. Yeah, they could have had all that fresh water, and uh, yeah, they had their their good hook set up there. I don't know what they wanted out of life. Jake, you got some thoughts on the Thunderdome? Um, like, I'm just looking it up on IMDb. It's been a while since I've seen it, but I, it's, it's not really, this, these aren't really, really encouraging words to go back and revisit it, so I don't know if I will. No, don't do it. Don't do it. The only thing that was interesting to me was, like, the evolution of the vehicles. Like, you could certainly see a lot of Fury Road in the last segment of, uh, of Thunderdome. Oh, sure, absolutely. Yeah, sure. And, the, and the last segment is pretty cool. I also like how George Miller, he does this thing where he sort of, like, retells or, or, you know, tells a different story but in the same world. It's very, like, James Bond-esque or Super Mario-esque where, you know, there's no continuity necessarily between the films. Uh, so in Beyond Thunderdome, the pilot from uh, The Road Warrior is there again. Like, it's the same actor, and he's a oh. pilot. But it's a completely yeah yeah it's a completely different character though, which I thought was kind of cool. Thankfully, he's a different character because God, I hated that character in the Road Warrior. Well, he drops snakes on people. 
Dropping a snake on Lord Humongous. How he's like some that? sort of a Shakespearean idiot. I don't even know. Like a fool. <laughs> he's a classic fool from old plays or something. It was just—he's an annoyance. Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> well, and hey, Steve Coleman, you'll appreciate this. Um, Ooh. If we didn't have the wrestling? if we didn't have the Road Warrior, we wouldn't have the uh, the Road Warriors. <laughs> And we certainly wouldn't have Axe and Smash of Demolition because uh, Axe and Smash of Demolition basically just dressed like Lord Humongous. Uh, Longest reigning tag team champions. Never forget. Alright. Anything else you guys want to say about the Mad Max series, like overall? Anything we missed? Oh, yeah, I wanted to bring up one thing. Um, Sure. John, you mentioned in uh, Fury Road he, he washes the blood off his face with breast milk. Um, and that just made me realize is how much of Fury Road is for a big Hollywood movie to score so well and do really well and everyone loves it. It's, it's frequently a very bizarre film. Um, yeah. You know, there's like the – and but just goes back to the whole world building and how everything just feels lived in. Um, but like, you know, there's that little dwarf sitting in the chair with the, with the horn and everyone has all those you – know, everyone is disfigured. And it's a frequent, you know, there's a lot of a lot of sideshow characters in there, but it's it, kudos to Miller for really making it work. Yeah, and there's like boils and bumps and stuff like that. Like, uh, uh, part of it reminds me of Dune, which we talked about. <laughs> um, like, uh, but also some of the back. some of, a... some of the um, set and production design um, <clears throat> reminded me not only of Dune, not not like specifically, but. More specifically, like something like Star Wars, but basically like that late '70s, early '80s um, period of film, which I, I as as modern as Fury Road is, um, a lot of that stuff about it felt like something I hadn't seen um, in decades, which was really really weird sensation. Mm-hmm. I also yeah. bring in, but keep in mind, I'm the one who had the more negative opinion, and yet Sean says, "Hey, see it? It's a lot like Dune." <laughs> well, wait, wait, we have we have another Dune tie-in here. You ready? <laughs> Sure. So, we were talking about Mad Men earlier, okay? Mad Men, one of the central characters, Sexy Grandpa, who was on the show Desperate Housewives, with Kyle MacLachlan, who plays the protagonist in Dune. Boom. (laughs) That was a bit of a reach, sir. (laughs) (laughs) It all comes back to Dune. Really, I think, yeah, all modern cinema is... So, basically, they're in the same universe. Yeah, they're in the same... (laughs) Mad Men, Dune... And all of the Mad Max movies are all in the same universe, as far as I'm concerned. And Desperate get... Housewives. And Desperate Housewives, as well. So every time I see John Slattery, I have to think of the goddamn Baron Harkonnen. And... That's right. Baron Harkonnen just moved on to Wisteria Lane. What's going to happen next? <laughs> what were you going to say, Coleman? Uh, oh, I was just going to give my final thought on the Mad Max series. Do it up, Steve. Well, well thank you, Fury Road, for passing the Bechdel test. <laughs> and thank you, Road Warrior, Mad Max, the original, and welcome to Thunderdome, beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> thank, thank you for giving us Mel Gibson. Hey, we can't uh, thank him enough. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if you had to pick one favorite Hollywood anti-Semite, it would probably be Mel, I'd assume, right? Mm-hmm. That's the obvious choice. All right, well... 
uh, we've got to the point in the show where we're going to wrap things up, so uh, it's time to put something over. Jake, we didn't really front load you on this, so um, I, I'm going to have to drop it on you. I'll let you go last so you can think of something. No, so, I'm, I'm ready, actually, if you want to. Oh, he's right. Holy shit. Oh, Did boy. Sean give you a debriefing? No, I even suggested it to Sean, so he said, oh, oh yeah, no, that's a good idea. It's got um, his shit together. Yeah, go ahead, Jake. Yeah, no, I'm a long-time listener. Don't worry. Uh I'm a, there's a new film out from uh, Studio Ghibli called uh, When Marnie Was There, um, and I had the fortune to see it last weekend, uh, and it's rumored to be the last film that they will ever produce, um, and I think it's it's a really wonderful film, so, uh, you know, it's not like Mad Max at all, um, but it's, uh, it's, yeah, I would say that is what I'm putting over this week, and um, maybe I'll write something for the site, you know? Hey, yeah. could use some content, man. Absolutely. Uh, I kind of want to see Studio Ghibli's Fury Road. <laughs> it's just it's just Totoro's on roller skates. <laughs> that's what it's called too. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's called um, Kind Road. <laughs> oh God, Myros, what are you putting over? Uh, so there's another trend I'm ornery about. I'm just ornery as hell, apparently. Uh, no. where, <laughs> there's, there's a lot oh, of, Grandpa Grumple Puss over here. So, I, I'm annoyed by the number of series that have been coming out as of late that just, uh, evo- claim to evoke, uh, Twin Peaks. Uh, I'm currently, uh, watching Fortitude, which is the latest in the line of, uh, the broad churches and the killings of the world, which, Think that by having a crime occur in a small town, you're fucking Twin Peaks. But uh, <laughs> don't even attempt to mimic the tone at all, and uh, are kind of miserable slogs. But uh, yeah, so I'm gonna go ahead and put over the one show that not only matched Twin Peaks tone but actually surpassed it, which is Grace and Lars Grace. von <laughs> Lars von Trier's Kingdom. Oh, uh, good oh. If you haven't seen it, uh, get on that. It's amazing. Wonderful, hilarious, excellent, compelling television. When you t- when you tell me something's hilarious, I have a feeling <clears throat> throughout uh, the production of this podcast that um, it's not what I think is hilarious. Well, here, Sean, let me let me paint a picture for you. Imagine a woman having a baby, and when she gives birth, it's <laughs> Udo Kier with giant spider legs, <laughs> like literally just like Udo Kier's head with spider legs. <laughs> And then at the end of every episode, for no reason, a crazed old man goes to the roof of a hospital and yells, Danish scum! <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, it's pretty amazing. Udo, Udo Kier, side note, Udo Kier wins best uh, uh, poster slash orgasm of all time. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Top five orgasm poster of all time. <laughs> Steve Coleman, what are you putting over? I'm kind of excited. Uh, there last week, uh, three new editions of the 33 and a third series came out. Ooh. Uh, for those who don't know, it's a series of books. Each edition of the book is about a certain album that has a certain amount of influence or what have you. Uh, this week, uh, three that came out: uh, Dead Kennedys, Fresh Fruit for Rotten for Rotting Vegetables, which is by Michael Stewart Foley. I'm really curious about Koji Kondo's Super Mario Brothers soundtrack book. Oh, yeah. Uh, which is by uh, Andrew Sharpman. Yeah, I'm really excited about that one. And uh, also uh, Devo's Freedom of Choice by 
Evie Nagy and a forward by Fred Armisen. Uh, I'm personally very interested in that one as well. I've even uh, had an opportunity to read a little bit of it. Um, so, yeah, they all sound really great, and uh, I'm just excited that the series is still an ongoing thing. I recommend any of the books, but uh, those three new ones sound really cool. Very cool. Maros, are, are you, like, trying to tap out a message in Morse code on your microphone? I don't think I'm doing anything on my own. <laughs> I just hear this, like, thump, 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 thump. Uh, Shaw, what are you putting over? Uh, <clears throat> mine is also um, words, like Coleman's. Um, someone yeah, on... Reading. Yeah, I know. Get out your glasses. Um, someone on my uh, Facebook shared um, a story, a piece of fiction from The New Yorker. Uh, the New Yorker is a publication out of um, New York. Uh, it's <laughs> wait, wait, state or city? <laughs> That's from Syracuse. The, the Big Apple, baby. Um, oh, only in New York. <laughs> yeah, when I read this, I was like, man, only in New York. Um, <laughs> so... So uh, anyway, uh, it's this is kind of funny to me because uh, this is like the if if you like ask me what was like the last thing I would click on on Facebook, this would be a, like top five, like a piece of long fiction um, from the New Yorker. But I did, um, and it's called it. I thought it was new, but it's from 2012. Um, but it's it's by Juno Diaz who um, wrote the book that everyone owns. Um, which is the brief, wondrous life of Oscar Wilde. Um, yeah, I got a copy of that. I haven't read it yet, though. Someone everyone, everyone, it everyone. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's called The Cheater's Guide to Love. Um, and it was the first time I had read short fiction um, in a while. But um, this dude is amazing. Uh, the whole thing is written in second person, um, so it stays true to its title of being like this guide but obviously it's t- it, it's the narrator talking about himself and his own experiences as someone who cheated. Um, and it's just really like a great mix of um, of uh, entertainment and poignancy uh, without having some like forced affect. Um, so it's, it's great stuff. Check it out. Cool, cool. All right, well, this week I'm actually putting over the new special edition of uh, Mad Max that's out on Blu-ray. Uh, Scream Factory put it out, and I honestly have to say it's one of, if not the absolute best transfers of an old like genre film that I've ever seen in my entire life. It's absolutely gorgeous. Um, there's a ton of special features, and it's just it's it's beautiful. Like I felt like I was watching Mad Max for the first time, even though I've seen it you know a half dozen times or so. So it's gorgeous. Go buy it. It's amazing. And uh, with that, I, I guess we're wrapping things up. So, Steve Coleman, last word is yours. You ain't seen nothing yet. We don't need-